You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is John Furling, Professor Emeritus of History, the University of West Georgia, and best-selling and award-winning historian of the American Revolution. Professor Furling taught numerous courses on the Revolution, America's Founders, and U.S. military history. He is the author of 13 books, of which I have eight of them, all but two of which have dealt with the American Revolution and its leaders. Last but not least, he is a lifelong fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team. His latest book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781, is the main topic of our podcast conversation today. It is available on Amazon and numerous other bookselling websites. It received significantly positive reviews in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Journal of the American Revolution. Thank you very much, Professor, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Your book is terrific. Uh, there were a few things that really made me think, some points that you made that I had never really pondered. And I'm not sure how many books I've read on the revolution and its leaders slash participants, I would guess 50-ish. 
And there were quite a few, and I want to talk to you about them specifically and how you came to those conclusions. Uh, but let's get right to it so that we can maximize our time together. If you watch bat boxing matches, as I'm sure we both did in our youth when boxing was actually popular and people watched it, there was something called the tale of the tape where the strengths and weaknesses or attributes of each side of each boxer were often put on television and discussed. So what would be your tale of the tape between the colonists and Great Britain as the war began in 1775? I, I would add a third figure in that tale of the tape, and that would be France. Uh, I think if the French hadn't come in, uh, America could just never have won this this war. That was the the crucial thing. Uh, <clears throat> the, the the French added uh, strength and supplies, uh, and ultimately a navy uh, to uh, to help the the Americans. And without French support, uh, the Americans would not have gotten independence. But there's no, if you, if you had to defend your PhD dissertation and the subject of defense was the colonies had a better chance to win the American Revolution militarily than the British did to win the American Revolution militarily. Could you defend that thesis? No, I don't think so. I think the, the British should have won the war in, or could have won the war in 1775 or 1776 or 1777. Um, I mean, they, the, the Americans didn't have uh, trained, experienced officers. They didn't have a, an, a, an army. They weren't very unified, didn't have a history of being unified at any rate, didn't have a navy didn't have manufacturing capabilities. Uh, so they had really a lot of things going uh, against them at the, at the outset of the war. And um, uh, the British, I think, just thought it would be um, an easy go. They couldn't imagine the Americans uh, putting up much of a fight. Um, and, and in the discussions in London, when, when the uh, Lord Norris ministry was deciding over the winter of 1774-75 whether to use force, uh, I think the general attitude was maybe one battle and it would be over. So, so they, the British were a bit careless uh, at that point. And, and I, I think um, I mentioned a minute ago that I think the, the British could have won the war. And let me mention a couple of ways that they they might have won the war in 1775, the first year of the war. Uh, Thomas Gage, General Thomas Gage, was the commander of the British Army in America. He was also the, the last royal governor of, uh, of Massachusetts. And Gage told London on more than one occasion, look, if you're going to go to war, you've got to send a lot of men over here. The British only had an, an army of about seven or 8,000 men. And, in all of America, and only about 5,000 in Boston when the war began. And Gage was telling him, look, if, if we score just a decisive victory over the Americans in the first engagement, that, that'll probably be it. A lot of the Americans had, had reservations about whether they could win a war against a, 
a major uh, foreign power like Great Britain and um, and just a colossal victory would would I think probably have ended the war but but Gage did not have enough troops he just had too few and uh, the result was on that first day of, of the war out of Lexington and Concord and then as the British army retreated back to Boston along Battle Road they just got chewed up by uh, thousands of American um, uh, militiamen who who had turned out. So that was one place where the British might have have ended the war at the very beginning. And and uh, two months later, in the Battle of Bunker Hill in June of uh, 1775, Sir Henry Clinton, who was um, uh, one of the three major generals in uh, in the British Army in in Boston outlined a plan using the Navy, the, the British Navy, to cut off the retreat of the American uh, fighters atop uh, Bunker Hill. And uh, if they had, if the British had done that, uh, they probably would have scored a bloodless victory. And, and I think the, the psychological impact of that all through the, the country where people wondered whether the Americans could put up a fight against the British would have been devastating. People would have, many people would have probably just said, "This is futile. Let's 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 throw in the towel." And instead, Clinton's plan was rejected, and the British marched right up the hill into an entrenched uh, American adversary, and uh, they they really marched into hell. Is probably the best way to uh, to put it. Um, uh, Israel Putnam, one of the American generals, not at Bunker Hill, but I mean, he was at Bunker Hill, but it was all a year or so later that he made the comment, of, if you put American militiamen behind a barricade, they'll fight all day long. And, the, and he, he meant by that they would fight resourcefully and they would fight well. And that's exactly what the, uh, the militiamen atop Bunker Hill uh, did they they couldn't fight all day long because they ran out of ammunition, but they fought long enough to mow down almost a thousand um, uh, British soldiers, and about forty percent of all of the British officers in America were wounded. So again, I mean, here here were two engagements within two months of one another in 1775, in which the British might have uh, have won the uh, the war. And in, in New York, uh, by this time, General uh, William Howe had replaced Gage as commander of the British Army. And uh, he, he was just a lethargic uh, general, overly cautious and, and, and not eager to move. And, and essentially, he had Washington's army trapped on Manhattan. Washington had... had, had uh, uh, how move very quickly, he could have sealed off all the exits from Manhattan. Washington's army would have been trapped and doomed. And if, if the Americans had lost the Continental Army on Manhattan in, uh, in September of 1776, this war would have, have, have been over. And then finally, again, in, in 1777, the British came up with a a plan where they were going to invade New York. General Burgoyne was coming down from Canada. And the question was, what would General Howe, who was in New York, uh, do? 
And if Hal had come up the Hudson River to, to link up with um, Burgoyne as he came down, catching the Americans and the Pincers, I, I think he could have, the British could have destroyed the, uh, the American army at, at that point. It, certainly Burgoyne would not have, his army wouldn't have been uh, captured and forced to, uh, to surrender. But instead, Hal went after Philadelphia and he left Burgoyne to his own devices. And the result was that in October of 1777, Burgoyne's army surrendered. So time and again, in um, in the first three years of the war, or first two years of the war, first 30 months, the British had had uh, ample opportunities, I think, to score to score decisive victories uh, that that could have crushed the uh, the insurgency, and they just failed to act on the opportunities that they had. Was there a an independence intangible that informed the colonials, infused, excuse me, the colonials with an edge that that translated to the battlefield? Uh, Napoleon, of course, Napoleon always gets credit for every military quotation, but Napoleon supposedly said morale is too material as three is to one. Was was that part of of the colonial makeup in their soldiery? Well. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, certainly they, they were fighting for independence. That, that uh, after the summer of 1776, that, that was their goal. And that was the shining light that was out there. People wanted to be independent. I, I think it, it you know, the, the war starts in April of 75, but independence isn't declared until 15 months into the, the war. So for the first 15 months of the war, they're fighting to be reconciled with Great Britain, but to be reconciled on America's terms. And um, the war, I think, during those 15 months radicalized people. And uh, the more radical they became, the more they wanted to break away from, from Great Britain and gain their independence. But also there's something else in, involved here uh, in 1776, the Americans had invaded Canada, and the, that in, in uh, they went in in the fall of 75. They were defeated at Quebec. The army is routed when British reinforcements arrive in the spring, and those and the American army comes limping back into New York. And Congress sent a committee up to look into the situation to see what was going on. Benjamin Franklin was the key figure in that committee that went up to, to take a look. And essentially what Franklin and his, and his colleagues on that committee said is that the, this is a rotten situation. The army is undisciplined. Uh, uh, the supply system is, is primitive and chaotic. And the bottom line, though they didn't quite say this, was we we can't win that we can't win this war if it keeps going on like this. And we, we, what we probably need is foreign assistance. And while they didn't say that publicly, Thomas Paine did in common sense. And Paine argued we have to declare independence in order to to get foreign assistance. As long as we're fighting to stay within the British Empire, there's nothing for France or, or Spain in this. But, but if we declare independence, 
and we can get independence, then Britain is going to be weaker and, and France and Spain um, would, would, would profit from, from the British losses. So I, I think that played into the decision to, uh, to declare independence. And then once it's, once it's de is declared, then obviously I think people were fighting uh, for something that they had not been fighting for at the, at the beginning of the war. And in a sense, I, I think it probably did help sustain morale. You know, morale goes up and down from late 1776, uh, when Washington retreated from New York back across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, a, a time period that, that Thomas Paine again called the dark time. And he always referred, as he looked back on it, always referred to it as uh, the dark time. And uh, I, I, I think um, morale was at rock bottom then, and, and morale sagged again later on in the war. But what did keep morale up, if anything, was the idea that uh, if we win this war, we get away from England, and 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 the and we have the promise of a brighter future. Payne outlined that future in common sense. He said independence would mean peace and prosperity peace in the sense that Americans would no longer be dragged into to Europe's wars. The, the American colonists had just fought four wars that really were wars between, this was over a period of about 17, uh, so about 75 years, wars that, four wars that began in 1689 and continued to 1763. There were really wars between Britain on the one hand and France and Spain on the other, but the colonists got dragged into to those conflicts. And so Payne said, look, if we're independent, we're not going to be dragged into uh, those wars. And then he also said peace means independence means prosperity because we can then trade with whomever we, we please, whereas Britain is restricting who we we can trade with. So it'll mean uh, uh, a much greater prosperity than we've enjoyed in the, in the British Empire. So from that standpoint, I think um, uh, the idea of fighting for independence did um, sustain uh, this war effort through, through good and bad times. Especially in the early years of the war, was there a talent gap between the British and American generals? And if so, how, how much did it close or did it close as the war progressed? Well, I think there was a, a talent gap uh, between the, the armies. Let me put it that way. I, I, I don't think General Gage and certainly not General Howe were the most talented generals uh, that, that uh, uh, ever became uh, commanders, but the British had a professional army, and it was a well-supplied army, a well-trained army, a somewhat experienced uh, army, and uh, through, throughout the officer corps, from generals down through colonels and majors down to the lowest level, uh, these were officers who had some training and they had some experience. And on the other side, the American side, 
that that wasn't the case. The Americans, General Washington was the commander. He had commanded um, a Virginia army for about five years during the French and Indian War, seven years war in, in the 1750s and 60s. But it was uh, his, com he commanded against Indians. He, he'd never commanded against uh, a European uh, army. Uh, so he really didn't have a great deal of experience, and that that was true of of most of the other uh, general officers. There there were two general officers, Horatio Gates and Charles Lee, who had been Richard Montgomery as well, had been veteran uh, British officers who left the British Army and moved over to uh, to the United uh, to the uh, colonies. Uh, before the, the Revolutionary War. But if you take them out of the picture, the rest of the officers were uh, pretty callow. They, they maybe, some of them had, had uh, soldiered a bit in the, in the uh, Seven Years' War. Nathaniel Green, on the other hand, had never soldiered. He, and, and John Sullivan from uh, New Hampshire uh, was a, a general officer. He had never soldiered. They'd been in militia. They'd marched around. Uh, muster fields and training fields and but they had never never really soldiered and the average the average soldier uh, was a militiaman most of them at the outset of this war were were young guys 18 20 21 years uh, old and they had been too young to serve in the uh, in in the in the la in the seven years war so uh, the, the British did, British Army, I think, was a much better army than than the than the Americans had at the outset of the the war. Things change as as it goes along in in, in two respects. One is that um, when the war began, the American soldiers enlisted for one year, and then almost all of them left as soon as their their term of service expired. They had they had had it. They they found out that that the life of a soldier, especially in wartime, was was not the best possible life. There were a lot of dangers involved, and they felt like they had done their duty. Now it's somebody else's turn. And at the end of the uh, first year of the war, Washington went to Congress and he said, look, uh, you know, we can't run the war this way. We, we can't lose an army at the end of every year and have to, record, have to uh, recruit another army. But Congress was afraid of a standing army and um, it said no to Washington. And then in, in, at the end of 1776, the second year of the war, Washington again went to Congress and said, look, I, we've got to we've got to have a standing army. And this time Congress knew that if they didn't do that, this, they were going to lose the war. They'd come very, very close to losing the war as it was in 1776. And so Congress um, stipulated that men who came into the army beginning in early 1777 would enlist for for three years or the duration. That is, they, they were in for at least three years, and if the war uh, lasted longer than that, they were in for, for a longer period. So, so I think from 1777 on, uh, the American army had a, a cadre of, of soldiers 
that were better trained and experienced under fire. And it became a Continental Army became a much better army. And the same was true of officers who, who got a good deal of experience in 1775 to 76 and um, then continued to get more experience as the, as the war went on. One historian argued uh, several years ago that of all of the, all of the generals in the, in the war, Washington was the one who grew the most. I think I'd add Nathaniel Green to that that equation too, but but I'd certainly say that was true of Washington. He 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 had further to grow than the British officers because he wasn't a professional soldier. Gage and Howe and Clinton had been in in the in the British Army for thirty years or so by the time the Revolutionary War started. Washington, as I said, had had only about five years' experience with a small Virginia army during the French and Indian War. So Washington had further to go, but he did grow. He learned, he learned from the mistakes that he made. He made a lot of mistakes, in fact, in the first couple of years of the war, but he learned from those uh, mistakes. And he became, uh, I think, um, uh, qu- quite a good general uh, overall. He, he, he's been called the, the indispensable man and uh, I, I think he, he probably was. I, I don't think anybody else could have been chosen to command the Continental Army who could have done the job that, that Washington did. Maybe if something had happened to Washington late in the war, if he'd gotten, he almost got shot at, um, at the Battle of Brandywine in September of 1777, had he been shot or had he gotten a camp disease or something and and died, and uh, he had, had told Congress that if something happened to him, he, he wanted Nathaniel Green to be his successor. And I think by late in the war, Green might have been able to do as good a job as, as Washington uh, did. I don't think he could have at the beginning of the war, but he, he like Washington, grew. Saratoga is kind of the watershed, perhaps, of, of not only the war, but of, of your book. And we're talking with Professor John Furling. Uh, he's written many books on the American Revolution. We're specifically discussing winning independence. Uh, Saratoga is, I guess, if you had to come up with a list of the 10 most important battles in American history, I'm assuming Saratoga would be one or two. Uh, but that's, I'll leave that up to you. But if, if, why didn't why didn't Saratoga end the war? Yeah, I, I, well, one of the reasons I wrote Winning Independence is that I wanted to tackle the idea that Saratoga is the turning point of the revolution. I, I think um, virtually every textbook that's ever been published on American history list Saratoga as the turning point of the war. But the fact of the matter is the war goes on for four years after Saratoga. And I, and I, and I try to argue in winning independence that Britain's defeat was not guaranteed uh, by, by Saratoga. I, I don't minimize the importance of Saratoga. The British lost an entire army there so, um, and, and 
and it really draws France into the war. So it was two really crucial things um, that that result from uh, Saratoga. But the war goes on and on and on. And uh, by 1781, Saratoga's in, in October of 1777. And by the beginning of 1781, I try to argue in, um, in winning independence that Sir Henry Clinton, who was then the commander of the British Army, was more confident at the outset, outset of that year than was George Washington. So um, it, it is a crucial, a crucial um, uh, 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 factor and point in the, in the, in the war. I, I don't, I don't uh, doubt that um, in, the, in the least, but the war does go on for a long time uh, after that. One of the things that I took from your book and uh, especially in your introduction is that there's so much attention paid to the Northern theater. That's where the war starts. And I'm, you know, I'm talking New York, Massachusetts, you know, you could even throw in Canada, maybe, you know, let's, let's throw Philadelphia or excuse me, Pennsylvania in there as well. There's so much attention uh, to it, Um, but the war really isn't won or lost by either side in the North. And what struck me was the comparison in my mind, you, you don't make it in the book, but I, I was, I made it as I was reading it. And you, you talk about it, please. And tell me if I'm wrong to the East West comparison in the American civil war, where the Eastern theater gets so much attention because that's Lee and Lincoln's in Washington. And there are a lot of big battles, famous battles that way. And both capitals are in, in the East, but the true victors and the union victory in the entire war, in my view, and I think it's most historians view really happens in the West Vicksburg, Shiloh, you have Grant Sherman, Sheridan comes out of the West Chattanooga, the list goes on and on. Is that an apt comparison that that one one geographic designation gets a lot of the attention, yet the other one may have been more dispositive? Yeah, sure. I I, I don't disagree with you at all. And and in fact, I I pondered that why why was that the the case uh, with with regard to the uh, Revolutionary War, and and I think there probably are are two factors involved. One one is that um, Washington wasn't down south until the last second, really. I mean, only he only arrives down in Virginia in September of 1781, three or four weeks before uh, Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown. And so I, I think, just as you said, historians tended to focus on Lee in the East in the Civil War historians tended to focus on Washington and Washington was up north uh, all of the time until 1781 in, uh, in this, this war. So I think that was one thing. I think the second thing that happened is that um, uh, Northern historians just were much more active. There, there, there were major uh, colleges and universities in the North in the early part of the 19th century. They had mm-hmm. PhD 
he had PhD programs and whatever. And so they were writing about, about the Revolutionary War. There were a couple of uh, people like David Ramsey in South Carolina who wrote uh, early books about the Revolutionary War. But most of what comes out in the 19th century about the Revolutionary War is written by Northerners, and they're looking at, at the war in the North. They're not that interested in the war in the, in the South. And, and when Southern historians finally started writing about war, they had another war that they were, were more interested <laughs> yeah. in, and that was the Civil War, of course. So um, uh, I, I think that's, that's probably, at least in my mind, why, why things worked out um, uh, that way. And, you know, even I, I live in, um, uh, down in, in metropolitan Atlanta and, um, the revolutionary war doesn't get that much attention down here, even though Georgia was one of the original 13 colonies. And there are two, two major battles in Savannah during the, the revolutionary war. But it's uh, when people think of, of wars uh, down here, I think they think of the Civil War and then more recent wars. World War II, Vietnam uh, have, have, I think, just uh, uh, overshadowed the interest in the Revolutionary War. So they choose to emphasize in their pedagogy the fact that Sherman kicked the living hell out of them all the way across the state <laughs> as right. opposed to. Anyway, you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are talking with revolutionary era historian john furling he's written so many terrific books we're talking today about his latest winning independence which chronicles uh, the last years of the war and britain's switch to a southern strategy let's talk about that for just a second please um, you know both uh, both philosophers uh, helmuth von moltke the prussian general and Mike Tyson, the famous boxer, uh, came up with kind of the same saying. Uh, Mulkey's saying was, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And Mike Tyson says, said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Equally brilliant in their own way. Uh, but the British decided to to implement to drive in a Southern strategy. And I want to ask you first to answer the question, why did they do that? That's A. And B, was it actually ever implemented? We have probably the most famous military plan in all history, the Schlieffen plan uh, that the Imperial Germans put together before World War I. And it really wasn't implemented as Schlieffen wanted it to. But did the British get that chance to fully implement their plan, and why did they look south? Okay, yeah, let me uh, let me take the first question first, and that is why did they why did they de devise the Southern strategy? And it it's devised in the aftermath of Saratoga. I mean, imagine the uh, 
the the fallout of of losing an entire army at Saratoga in uh, October of 1777, and the British that the news of of what had happened at Saratoga reaches London in December of 1777, and and immediately um, two two things happen. One is there had all along been uh, an opposition party in Parliament to the war. They they thought it, it was a hopeless situation. The British would lose America, you know, on and on. They had numerous reasons for for opposing the war from the from the beginning. And now that they've lost an entire army 30 months into the war, the opposition forces in Parliament are demanding an end to the war. And then the second thing that happens is Lord North convenes, he's the prime minister, he convenes the, the, his cabinet, and they begin discussing, what, what are we going to do? And there were some who wanted to just drop out of the war. They thought it was, was now a hopeless uh, situation. Others wanted to stay in the war, but focus on protecting British sugar islands in the, um, in the Caribbean. Um, others wanted to offer, at least first offer the Americans some sort of peace plan to see if they could could get the Americans to accept a settlement short of independence. And then there's the king, George III, and he's insisting that the war continue. He modifies uh, his thinking a little bit as time goes along, but he never abandons the idea that that the war could be won and Britain should continue to to pursue uh, crushing the the, uh, the the rebellion and and I think because of George the Third's attitude, the ministry decides still has a majority in Parliament and it decides it has to uh, continue the war. But the after thirty months, they haven't won the war with their previous strategy, so they have to come up with a new strategy. And the new strategy is really devised by the American secretary. Uh, and the American secretary was was in effect, he didn't have this title, but he was in effect kind of the war minister for uh, Norris Cabin. And that's Lord George Germain. And Germain uh, comes up with the, the American strategy, uh, the Southern strategy, I'm sorry. And, and uh, that's, that's what the, the ministry will embrace. And the idea of the Southern strategy was that, uh, first of all, the, the, there was an assumption which historians have generally demonstrated was a correct uh, supposition on, on Germain's part, that there were more loyalists in the South than uh, was the case up North. Greater, per, greater percentage of the population remained loyal to England. And I think it was for a whole, whole bevy of, of reasons, uh, their, their ties to the Anglican church and whatever, but mostly I think for economic reasons. The South exported rice and tobacco and whatever 
to uh, to England, made a lot of money off that, made a lot of money off slavery and whatever, and they they wanted to stay within the 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 empire. And so uh, Germain said, "Look, I I think there's a chance that we can um, crush the rebellion in Georgia and in South Carolina." And that if we crush the rebellion in South Carolina, North Carolina will probably be doomed as well. Virginia maybe is a different matter, but they there was a real possibility that they could uh, crush the insurgency in three southern colonies. And uh, if they did that, Britain, let's say the war would end with with the United States gaining independence. But it would be 10 states that were in the United States because North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia had been crushed and they were back in the British Empire. The the British Empire would have been a pretty impressive empire, even having lost those 10 states. It would have Canada. It would have the, the area west of the Appalachians. It would have those three southern colonies and Florida, which it had gained in the Seven Years' War, and it would have a whole bevy of sugar islands in the Caribbean. So it would be still a a large empire, profitable empire, and it would completely encircle those 10 states in the United States. They wouldn't be able to expand. They would be just cut off um, and the, and the, their quality of life would probably start sinking, their economy would suffer, and uh, there was a, a reasonable prospect, I think, if, if they got those three southern states and three southern colonies and held on to, to what else they had, had, had uh, possessed all along, there was a, probably a reasonable prospect that Within 15 or 20 years of, of the war, the United States would say, well, let's let bygones be bygones and then work out some sort of accommodation with Great Britain, probably something along the, the lines of the, of, the, of the Commonwealth system that developed. And their relationship with Britain might be, say, like Canada's relationship with, with Great Britain. So I think that that was what really was was the underlying idea behind Germain's Southern strategy and the ministry bought into it. They still had a majority in parliament. And so uh, they this is a strategy they're, they're going to pursue. They, they did. I mentioned that, that some people wanted, really demanded that uh, North, Lord North offer some sort of peace proposal to the Americans. And what North offered was essentially exactly what the First Continental Congress had demanded on the eve of the war, that Americans would be, American colonies would, for all practical purposes, be independent. That is, they they wouldn't be taxed. British laws wouldn't apply here. uh, but they wouldn't be independent in name, and the British could demand it under the peace plan that they would still control 
uh, American trade within the, the empire. But the Americans would have been considerably more autonomous than they had been before the war. And that's what Congress wanted on the eve of the war. But the Americans knew that on the one hand, in 1778, they could choose between Lord Norsby's plan and stay in the empire, or on the other hand, they could accept an alliance with France, because after Saratoga, France conducted talks with the, with the three American uh, uh, commissioners in Paris, and they worked out terms for an alliance in, uh, in, and signed it in, in Paris in, in February of 1778. And so France's entry into the war, I think Congress thought this, this guarantees independence. And Washington says that two or three times in his correspondence in April and May of 1778, um, we're as good as independent now. I mean, he didn't say it quite in those terms, but that, that was what, what he meant, that, that would, if Britain couldn't defeat America before France came into the war, it certainly couldn't defeat America uh, that was getting assistance from the, the French. So the Americans rejected North's peace plan and they accepted the alliance with France. Interesting that the Loyalist Army, I think in your book, you write four times, they keep getting the living hell kicked out of them uh, by by their brothers and uh, from who are fighting on the, the colonial side. So, you know, to the extent that they were helpful, of, of course, but they just didn't seem to be able to um, translate that into military success. One of the best parts of your book, actually, I think it's one of the best descriptions of the the privations, the harsh conditions, uh, you, you discuss it at length in multiple chapters. And before we get on to discussing the year 1781, which I want to bring up, the conditions under which both the British, but especially the Americans, fought and marched and endured is something that you just can't fathom. Even winter in the southern states were particularly harsh. Why did you feel that was an important part of, of your book and of your research and writings to make sure that the reader understood, do you really have any conception under which the conditions these men fought and lived? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, soldiering in, in wartime is, is a tough go. Uh, in the 21st century, 20th century, 19th century, whatever. And um, in the 18th century, it, it was a particularly tough go. I mean, they, they um, everywhere they, they, an army moved, they, they moved on foot. The officers, maybe highest ranking officers rode horses, but the men moved on foot. Un, unlike in, in World War II or in, in more recent wars, where uh, troops were conveyed by by trucks and even by trains and and planes and whatever, but they're they're moving on foot. And um, the Americans had a, a just a a chaotic supply system. They they were just never able to overcome the problems uh, of supplying 
their their army. And in part, I, I think it was just it was primitive because men weren't experienced in that sort of thing. Uh, it it was difficult difficult because of the the primitive technology. I mean, imagine it would have been so much easier if Washington could have gotten on the telephone and called somebody and said, look, we need this or that. But uh, there was always a communications uh, lag. It took 30, about 30 days or more for a letter written uh, by a soldier in an, an officer uh, in the Carolinas to reach New York, uh, for example. Then another 30 days to, for the response uh, to come back. And there were shortages of things, shortages of horses, shortages of wagons, shortages of, uh, of, of provisions of, of every kind. And one reason there were shortages of food was that uh, the, the Americans were paying farmers for food with money that from 1777 on was increasingly worthless money. Um, because the American economy with inflation just running wild, the, the currency had depreciated and it didn't have any value. And the British, on the other hand, could go to the farmers and say, look, we'll, we'll pay you in specie. They'll pay you in good hard currency. And so a lot of the farmers who, who may have been patriots would sell their goods to the British and not to the Americans. So there were shortages there. And there was corruption. There's, there's always corruption, and there was corruption in the supply system as well. So uh, the the these people were were often deprived. They just didn't have uh, much to eat. What they did eat wasn't very uh, nutritious. Um, they, you know, Washington at one point mentions that the French had sent over tons of clothing and shoes. And Washington says, I guess they're in a warehouse someplace because we don't have them here. They'd gotten to America, but they didn't get to the army. I mean, some did, obviously. But uh, uh, the, the men were oftentimes um, uh, just ill-clad, poorly housed, poorly fed. And um, it, it was a, a tough go. And we now think that Nobody knows exactly how many American soldiers died during the war, but I think the best guess is probably about 35,000 died during the, this war. And of that 35,000, um, uh, the great majority, probably about 7,000 or, or so died uh, as battlefield casualties, but the others died of uh, of disease and it was disease that was brought on in part because they were living in close proximity to one another and they didn't have antibiotics in those days but partly it was because i think they were probably just immunocompromised uh because uh, of poor clothing poor shelter poor diets and whatever we have just a few minutes left with historian professor John Furling, who's written several books on the American Revolution in that period. Let's talk in our last segment. 1781, you make a point in your book, uh, which 
I'd never really thought of before at all. And that entering the last year of the war of the last year of fighting, the Treaty of Paris was signed in September of 1783, but 1781, I think it's fairly uh, can be said that it was the last year of, of actual true hard fighting that entering 1781, you had no idea who was going to win and how that contrasts with 1865 and, and 1945, when by then the, it was pretty much no longer in doubt. Uh, but but 1791 starts out with my favorite battle of all time, my favorite American battle for sure, and that is the Battle of Cowpens, January 17th. It's a brilliant tactical masterpiece by Daniel Morgan, and I think it's not overstating to say that Cowpens is a bit of a direct line that leads to Yorktown uh, nine months later. Uh, tell us about the Battle of Cowpens and and how. Cornwallis, Lord Cornwallis, ends up losing it all at the Siege of Yorktown on October 19th, 1781. Sure. The um, uh, General Green was the, the American commander in the South. He's, um, he, he's appointed the commander late in 1780. He arrives about December of 1780 in North Carolina. And uh, General uh, Earl Cornwallis is the, the commander of the British Army in in North Carolina in the in the South, and Green does something that's unconventional. He decides to divide his army in the face of a superior adversary. That's that's the great no no of of war. <laughs> right. But he does that, and he sends Daniel Morgan out to. Western uh, North Carolina, and Green stays in Eastern North Carolina. And he thinks that um, uh, Cornwallis can do one of two things. Cornwallis can, can divide his army and come after each, each half of the American army, or he, Green thought he might come after him. And in that case, Morgan would leave Western North Carolina come over and join Green for whatever kind of showdown uh, occurred with with uh, Cornwallis. But Cornwallis chooses the former option. He he divides his his army and he goes after uh, 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 Morgan in Western North Carolina, and he he actually sends Vanastra Tarleton, uh, who commanded. Uh, his cavalry uh, to go after uh, Morgan, and he catches up with Morgan at um, at Cowpens, and Morgan fight. Morgan chooses a, a strategy that uh, was somewhat unconventional. That he he puts his militia in in the front ranks. They're they're going to be the first who faced the, the British as the British advance. And then he puts his more experienced Continentals behind them. And he tells his militiamen, <clears throat> get off about three shots. <clears throat> and then after you do that, fall back behind the, the Continentals. And then behind them, he's placed his, his cavalry. Uh, and, and I think one reason that Morgan did this, I, I find Morgan really one of the most fascinating of all of the American commanders. 
during this war. He, he, most of the American commanders came from either pretty wealthy backgrounds, as was the case with Washington or Schuyler in, in New York, uh, for example, or they at least came from um, sort of upper middle class backgrounds. But Morgan came from a really hard scrabble uh, background. And um, uh, I, I think when he saw himself in a lot of these militiamen, they, they were just like he was when he was first starting out. And he knew that he had been a good soldier, and I think he thought they could be good soldiers. Green and, and, and Washington never really accepted that idea, and they never got as much out of their militiamen as as Morgan did, but he he had confidence in them, and um, so it, it it becomes just a uh, almost a textbook example of how, how to how to wage a a battle. As as Tarleton moves forward, he encounters the militia who um, take a pretty big toll of them, and then they they come forward. Uh, against the Continentals. And when they saw the militiamen falling back, they thought the Americans were, were beginning to re- panic and, and retreat. And in fact, just back the previous August, only about four months or so before this, in the Battle of Camden in South Carolina, the Americans had broken and run. And um, uh, uh, Tarleton thought that's what they're doing again. So he charges ahead and he charges right into the, into the Continentals uh, who were who the, the uh, militiamen have fallen behind. And then to his great surprise, uh, across a knoll from behind the Continentals come the, the American cavalry. And um, the result is just a devastating defeat inflicted on on Tarleton. And, and not only did the British lose a great many men at, uh, at Cowpens, but to this point, Tarleton was, I think, the most feared British soldier of all by the Americans. Uh, he, he had perpetrated a massacre in, uh, in South Carolina after Clinton took Charleston uh, up in the Waxhaws area of South Carolina, and uh, he was greatly, greatly feared. But now, I mean, this cuts Tarleton down to size at this point, and the Americans know that they can, can they can fight against him and fight against him uh, successfully. And uh, w- within two months, Cor- Cornwallis fights another battle against Green at Guilford Courthouse. Um, and uh, Green scores another victory there, technically a victory for the British because they they wind up in control of the battlefield, but they lost so many more men than Green than did Green, men that they couldn't replace where where Green had a pretty good chance of replacing the men that that he lost. And this begins to to turn things around. But I don't think really that Cowpens or Guilford Courthouse guarantees, in and of themselves, guarantees uh, that Britain will lose the war or the American 
will win the war. I, I try to argue that something else happens uh, after Guilford Courthouse and Cowpens that really is the crucial moment in, in um, what's going to unfold in 1781. And that is Battle of the Capes. That is Rochambeau convincing Washington to march south. Well, all, all of that. All the above. <laughs> all, all of that to be sure. But, but what I'm thinking of is Sir Henry Clinton. And I, one of the things I tried to do in the book, Sir Henry Clinton is the commander of the British Army from, from May of 1778 on. And I, one of the things I tried to do was rehabilitate Clinton's reputation, which has, has suffered. He, he did lose at Yorktown, so he lost the war, whatever. But I think he was the best strategist that the, that the British had. And he devised a plan that he thought could carry, successfully carry off the, the Southern strategy. And his plan was pretty simple. Cornwallis is to stay in, in the Carolinas and, and fight against General Greene. And Clinton puts an army in Virginia. First, he sends an army under Benedict Arnold, who's now a British officer, sends about 1,800 men under Arnold to Virginia in December of 1780. Then he decides it's too small, vulnerable, so he sends a much larger army into Virginia under General William Phillips. So he's got about 6,000 men in Virginia. And their purpose in Virginia is not to crush the insurgency in Virginia, <clears throat> but it's to interdict the flow of supplies to Green's army down in the south that supplies for the most part, the supplies the Americans had came from abroad. And most, for the most part, they landed in New England and then they came down through New York and Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, into Virginia and down through Virginia into the Carolinas. And so Clinton puts this large army there there to destroy supply um, depots and interdict the flow of supplies. That with supplies cut off, Green's going to have, he's going to be like fighting with one arm behind his back and Cornwallis is to stay in, in uh, uh, South Carolina and, and Condesta. But Clinton all along feels that what's going to happen in 1781, I mean, he knows that a French army is being sent to America. That's no secret. He, he's told in March, uh, six months before Yorktown, that a French Navy is coming to America under de Grasse. Uh, he doesn't know where it's going to come. He knows it's got to be probably one of three places. Either that Navy is going to come to Charleston and try to retake Charleston, or it's going to come to the Chesapeake and uh, try to crush Cornwallis, or it's going to come to New York. And Clinton feels certain that it will come to, to New York, that that'll, that'll be the big prize that the rebels uh, have, have always looked uh, toward. And so from the beginning, 
His plan is to pull that army out of Virginia, put 6,000 men there, but he's going to pull four of those 6,000 men back to Virginia to defend uh, out of Virginia, back to New York to defend against this this French Navy and Washington and Rochambeau's army uh, when they attacked. And he stopped in his tracks by Germain. Lord Germain writes to Clinton in July of 1781, and he says, the king and I do not want you to remove one soldier from Virginia. Clinton had already started loading Cornwallis's men on ships at Portsmouth to come back to to uh, New York, and but he he has to follow orders. He can't disobey the orders of the king and Germain, and so uh, he writes Germain as a uh, writes to uh, Cornwallis and say, okay, stay in Virginia, and I think from that point on. This really is the, the key decision in, um, in 1781. The Cornwallis is there. He's a sitting duck. The French do come to the Chesapeake. Washington and Rochambeau come to the Chesapeake. And Cornwallis is forced to surrender in the siege of Yorktown. Last question before we get to the final five questions we ask all of our guests. Take a minute or two and describe to us what you think was going through George Washington's mind as he uh, received the surrender of the British at Yorktown. First, the British tried to be jerks and surrender to the French, even though they knew Washington was conducting the correspondence. And then they tried to surrender to Washington, but because Cornwallis was sulking in his tent and he sent his uh, second in command to uh, surrender. Uh, Washington pointed him to his second in command, who was Benjamin Lincoln, who was probably having his own little bit of, of revenge uh, for what had happened to him earlier in the war at the hands of the British. Uh, but uh, take us into the mind for just a minute of George Washington and what do you think as a man who's written about him, you've written a biography of him, you studied him your whole life. What was he thinking, feeling? Yeah, I, I think probably a, a couple of things. I, uh, for, for one, I mean, obviously he's overjoyed at, as what, what's happened. I mean, this has been an incredibly long war. He left home in, in May of 1775 and did not get back to Mount Vernon until September of 1781, just before the siege at, at Yorktown. So he's been away a long time. He's separated from his wife much of most of every year. He's uh, had just an incredible array of problems thrown at him year after year, lots and lots of bad times mutinies in his army, defeats, um, situations that just seem to be hopeless. And so he obviously, I, I think, would, would have felt just incredible joy, joy that, that, he's, that this is going to be the decisive victory on the one hand, but joy that the war is, is now going to end 
and American independence is, is virtually uh, guaranteed with the, with the, the surrender of, of, of Cornwallis. But I think the second thing that Washington probably was thinking is after Saratoga, uh, Gates had scored the great victory at Saratoga over Burgoyne, and Washington that same at that same moment, the fall of 1777, hadn't done that well at Brandywine. And there were people in Congress, in and out of Congress, who wanted to dump Washington and replace him with, with Gates. And it was a, a, a long, anxious winter for Washington. It wasn't absolutely certain that he was going to survive as commander of, of the Continental Army. So I, I think probably one thing he was thinking at Yorktown is now he's been vindicated. His, his, he's been vindicated as a, a credible uh, general and commander and he has produced this decisive uh, uh, victory. He, he always spoke of the, of the Revolutionary War as this glorious cause. And he had now brought this glorious cause to a successful uh, end. So I think probably all of those things were, were going through Washington's mind. Now I know where uh, Robert Middlecoff got the uh, title for his book. Right, I didn't, I didn't know until just now. Uh, we've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Furling, are you ready? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, what was your first job? Uh, well, um, I guess if you want to go back to <laughs> when I was in school, it was selling men's clothing at J.C. Penney's in the summertime. But my, my first teaching job, I started teaching in a high school, I taught for two years at a high school in Orange, Texas. I grew up uh, near Galveston, Texas, and I taught for two years. I'd, I'd gotten my master's degree. I wanted to lay out and um, uh, just relax. I was tired of school, but I knew I was going to go to graduate gone to on to graduate school. And um, I so I taught for two years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved teaching there. In fact, I, I loved it so much that at the in my second year, I thought I better get out of here because if I don't, uh, I'll probably never get out of here, never get to grad school. So that that was my my first uh, teaching job. What was your first concert? First concert I attended? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Golly. Um, well, I used to go to uh, the, the uh, symphony in Atlanta quite a bit. Uh, I think it was probably, I'm not sure I can remember the first one, but I think think it was the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra playing one of my favorites, Pictures at an Exhibition. Number three, if you could choose any book for someone to read, which book would you choose or recommend? Hmm. Well, when... Um, <laughs> I... 
I don't know, because I, I mean, I just read so many books and, and uh, I'm not sure. Okay, let, let, me, let me answer it this way. When I was in college, I'll give you a roundabout answer. When, when, when I was in college, I started college thinking I might want to major in history. And you had to take four semesters of required courses. Uh, two two in, in Western Civ, two in American history. And they were so incredibly boring that I thought I never want to take another history course in my life. And I was taking the last one and um, uh, the professor I was taking fell ill, had to go into the hospital. And so in the time-honored tradition of of ways they ran the low man on the totem pole and to, to finish the semester. It was a professor who had just was a freshly minted PhD in history named William uh, Painter. And Dr. Painter said, I don't lecture. Here's go, go buy, go purchase these five books. And each day when we meet, you'll read 50 or 75 pages uh, that I assign and we'll discuss those books. And Two of the books, I don't remember all five of them, but I remember two of them. One of them was Alan Bullock's Hitler, A Study in Tyranny. And the other was Marcus Cunliffe's book, George Washington, Man and Monument. And those two sort of really turned me around. Uh, that and, and the discussions in class, I had never experienced anything like that before. And before the semester was over, I thought, you know what I'd really like to do is I'd like to write books like these guys. And I went into Dr. Painter's office and I said, you know, how do you write books? I mean, do you have to be a man of means to do this? And he said, hell no, you teach in college. And when I walked out of his office, I knew two things. I wanted to go to graduate school so I could teach in college. And I wanted to write books. So in a sense, those, those two have been the most influential to me. There are other books on Hitler that I would recommend now rather than, than Bullock's book. But I, I would still recommend Marcus Conloff as a book. Maybe not the most important book I've, that I've ever read, but um, certainly it was influential in my life. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens. Which event would you choose? Well, uh, let me tell you, in, in November of 1963, I was teaching at a high school in Texas, as I said. And my closest friend was working in Dallas. And he called me on the phone and he said, look, Kennedy's coming to Dallas next weekend. Uh, once you come up, we'll go to the parade and see see Kennedy, and then SMU is going to play Baylor uh, on Saturday. We'll go to that football game. I'd gone to school at Baylor, and I thought, well, the only way I my principal will never let me do this, and so I'd have to go in and lie to my principal uh, about why I was going to miss school, and I was afraid to do that. It was the first year of my first job. Uh, teaching. And so I didn't go to Dallas. My friend didn't see the assassination. He was at the other other end of, of uh, Dallas. And we did see Kennedy in the motorcade. 
and I guess if I could see, could be present at any event, because I, I, I have been sort of a bug on the assassination ever since, uh, I, I think I would have liked to have been in Dealey Plaza and seen that event. I don't know if you're a podcast listener, but if you are, I will send you the link to the podcast interview I did with Clint Hill. Oh, sure. Yeah. The Secret Service. Yeah. Last question. If yeah. you could have dinner. Let me, let me mention when you go back to, to important books, I, I don't know that I think this is the most important book ever written, but I think it's the very best book on the Kennedy assassination is one that came out about only about a year or so ago by Josiah Thompson called Last Second in Dallas. And I think he comes closer to unraveling what happened in the shooting uh, than, than anybody else who has examined that. I'll have to look that up. I appreciate it. Maybe I can get him on the podcast. I'll drop yeah. your name. Yeah. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record to talk about anything you choose, whom would you like to sit down with? living today? Um, may, maybe somebody like Dan Rather, who... Speaking uh, of Dallas, November right. 22nd, 1963. Right. Mm -hmm. And he and I went, I, I've never met Dan rather, but he and I went to the same undergraduate school, State College in Texas. And um, but he was a newsman. He covered lots of events, lots of personalities. Would be interesting, I think, to pick his mind off the record and see see what uh, what he what he had to say. Um, so so maybe maybe uh, someone like him, I think. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been John Furling, an absolutely terrific writer, if I may say. I'm so happy I have a collection of your books. They have all been terrific, and we very much appreciate your time today. Your latest, called Winning Independence, which chronicles the last years of the Revolutionary War, really is a, is a thinker. Brought up several things I'd never uh, thought about before and does so in just terrific style. Thank you very much, Professor, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Robert, for having me. I've enjoyed Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.